Well, thank you for that. Uh, several years ago, I was doing some last-minute Christmas shopping, and my kids are in high school now. At the time, they were three and five, and my son Silas in department stores loved to run around and play hide-and-seek, and so I'm kind of holding his hand. That time of year, it was busy, and there were people everywhere, and he looks at me and said, Dad, I really need to go to the bathroom. And if you're a parent, you know, like, you have this small window. And so I'm trying to find the bathroom panic mode. And this store clerk said, sir, it's right over there. And the only unfortunate thing about right over there was we had to walk through the women's lingerie section to get there. So I'm walking with my head down and my eyes kind of on the ground, doing my best not to make eye contact with anyone or anything. And Silas said, Dad, look which is like the most dangerous thing you can say in that section of the store. And so I look, especially if you're a preacher, and he lets go of my hand and takes off running. And I'm like, no, not over here. And he's running between the racks and hiding. And so I'm calling out his name and pulling stuff back. And all these women are looking at me like, who's this pervert? And I can't find him anywhere. And I look up, and he is standing on a sales table. And he has taken, excuse me, a bra, and he's got it above his head, and very excitedly he said, Dad, on Tom and Jerry, they use these as parachutes. And he just runs and jumps off this table. Well, I'm mortified, absolutely mortified. My face is turning red. I pick him up, and I can hear all the women kind of giggling and, you know, laughing at me. And very distinctly, I hear this voice behind me say, hey aren't you the preacher at Southland Church? And I quickly said, no, ma'am, my name's Adam Weber. I preach at a church (laughs) up in South Dakota. It's very nice to meet you. We'd love to have you. Hey, it's good to be here. I love Adam and Becky and their family, and I love this church. And you just need to know that you have a cheering section in Central Kentucky, and we're just thrilled with what God's doing uh, through all of you. And today I'm going to be in Mark chapter 10 if you want to look that up. Uh, You should be able to follow along on the screens. And I want to introduce our talk today by introducing you to my good friend, Donnie. Uh, I am Donnie's legal guardian, and Donnie is 55 years of age. And when he was a little boy, sadly, he suffered a traumatic brain injury at the hands of a violently abusive dad who would beat him up and lock him in a bathroom or a closet for days on end. And it kind of locked Donnie in a, in a permanent stage of adolescence, if you will. He has the emotional wherewithal of about a six or seven-year-old. I'm super proud of him uh, because he holds down a regular job at Fazoli's. He passes out those breadsticks that make you smell like garlic for a month, and he earns about $700 a month, and he's really diligent. He puts 400 towards his rent and bills, and the other 300 he puts in his pocket, and he gets on his bike, and he rides from garage sale to garage sale buying Christmas gifts for all of his friends. Uh, Donnie's Christmas list as of last week has 381 names on it. So it takes him all year and he spends all of his money on it. If he were to meet you, he would ask your name and then he would put your name on the Christmas list. If you're a woman, uh, you're going to get costume jewelry or a paper novel. If you're a guy, you're going to get cologne. I'll just go ahead and ruin it for you. Um, Last Christmas, I got a half-used bottle of Stetson. It's been wonderful for my marriage. My wife can't keep her hands off me. I'm so grateful to Donnie and his investments in my love life. But I tell you about Donnie um, because he embodies a value, a truth in Scripture that I think the American church has lost. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Anytime I meet someone greedy or selfish or struggling with materialism, I say, hey, let's go to lunch. And then I bring Donnie with me. 
And I introduced them to Donnie and have him talk about how he just loves to give to other people. One of those young men was a man named Tony. Tony's made millions of dollars making music for commercials and movies. And this newfound wealth had a dangerous effect on him. And so I said, hey, I want to introduce you to my friend Donnie. And Donnie and Tony are now best buds. And I asked Tony if he would share with you on video the difference that Donnie has made in his life. So here is Tony and Donnie together. Take a look. And uh, then I saw Muhammad Ali. I said, and there's this lovely wife. Look at her smiling right behind me. Her, right, and so she, oh, she. I talked to both of them for about 10, 15 minutes, right there. He and I talked, and uh, and he, he had his arm around me too. And so, look, and here's um, my mother. Okay, this is right, this right, huh, this right behind uh, the wing, uh, right here, uh, 28A. My mother and I, uh, first uh, plane trip together, uh, uh, Thursday, November 15th, 1984. Um, as a Christmas present, that's okay. Um, uh, as a Christmas present from me to her. <sighs> I enjoyed that day. I enjoyed her so much, so much. I enjoyed. Uh, there, that's that's. My mother loved that right there because she loved that outfit. Cause look, look at Judge Judy's. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that coming. Look. Uh, then this is what Tony Anderson gave me. Yeah, he, he got this because he's so cute. I tell you, and I want this. Uh, did you see Tony Anderson's picture right here, too? Yes, I did. I told Tony Anderson, if I want to put you as close to my bed as I can so I can look at you all night every night. I'm going to skip over. Uh, watch this out to Tony. Thursday, 3.20 p.m. Time and day not set. Don, are you there, buddy? It's Tony calling you again. Uh, call me as soon as you get this because we want to film over your place tonight. So call me back. I love you, I love him. He's great. Uh, but look. I had been given an old Dell desktop, and I had Fruity Loops, and I had um, terrible ideas. Uh, the great thing about that time is that I could risk everything. There was no idea that. I could be successful and there was no idea that I could fail. And it was fun. All of a sudden that childlike joy and innocence I used to have um, has been replaced with this very adult business-like approach to music. And what scares me is when I write something because I'm trying to compete with someone? You know, what is that? You know, why is it that when I hear amazing music from one of my friends, my first thought is not to celebrate them, but to compare and to say, how am I gonna make something better than that? And I'm actually starting to believe that um, relationships might be better than writing tons of music and people knowing my name. There's this one guy in particular named Donnie who would show up like every day and he'd knock on the door and um, he would just want to talk. He didn't want anything from me. He just wanted to be loved. He just wanted to be listened to. And I kept sending this guy away 
because I had better things to do, you know? Like, sorry, dude, I got stuff to create. I got deadlines. Um, and Donnie doesn't know what I do, and he doesn't care what I do. And he's not impressed by who uses my music. Donnie cares whether or not I opened up my door that day. Society looks at Donnie, and they think there's something wrong with them. I used to think there was something wrong with them. Because Donnie um, purely and innocently enjoys every human being he runs into. In every meal he eats. Donnie is the greatest gift in my life. As my heart is beginning to, to come alive again, I'm now able to enjoy these people that have been around me. Donnie is helping me to get outside of me. Well, Friday nights at our house, karaoke, if you're in Kentucky, you can come hang out with us. Donnie's awesome at it. Um, but I want to tell you, years ago, my dad battled cancer. And he eventually lost that battle to cancer. And at his funeral 11 years ago, I watched this interesting social dynamic take place at the front of the church. Uh, people were letting down those normal physical barriers and guards that we put up. And they were hugging my mom and my sister. And I realized it had a profound effect on me. Just something as simple as a hug. So on the way home from that funeral, we stopped at a store. And with my daughter's help, I made this sign and every Tuesday for the last decade, I've stood on a corner in downtown Lexington and just offered free hugs to anyone that wants them. And one of the very first men to come across the street kind of grimaced and then got closer and looked at it. And he said, oh, I thought it said free hogs. <laughs> I was like, what? Only in Kentucky would people think we're giving away free farm animals on a street corner. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you, man. Uh, there's a courthouse across the street. And... The judge, when he's sentencing people for drug-related offenses, part of their punishment is they have to come hug me. And I can see them coming, like, they're just like, oh, that guy again, and they have to give me these side hugs. But I was down there a few years ago. I'd lost this bet and had to bleach my hair. It was a dumb bet. And I'm, I'm standing there, and this lady rides up on her 10-speed, and she watches me for, like, five or six minutes. I hug probably a dozen people, and I'm talking, and she keeps taking hits off her cigarette and looking at me funny, and then she said what's your sign say? And I realized she, she couldn't read. And so I told her what it said and she cocked her head to the side, kind of like, this is weird. And so I just went in for the kill and I wrapped her up and she grabbed a hold of the back of my shirt and just held on for dear life and started to cry like a baby. And she whispered something in my ear that I'll never forget. She said, nobody's hugged me in a long time. You can at least appreciate that. When nobody hugs you, you begin to feel like a nobody. But nobody's a nobody to God. Everybody's a somebody to God. And in Mark chapter 10, we're introduced to a somebody who's been made to feel like a nobody. I just want to read this story aloud for us today. Listen to this. In Mark chapter 10, verse 46, it says, As Jesus and his disciples left town, a great crowd was following. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road as Jesus was going by. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus from Nazareth was nearby, I love his tenacity. He began to shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And isn't this like religious people? Be quiet. 
Some of them yelled at him, but he shouted only, louder, son of David, I love this guy, have mercy on me. And this is why we love Jesus. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said, come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. I bet he did. Love this. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. Teacher, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has healed you. And instantly the blind man could see. You know, if I could highlight one verse for you today, it would be verse 51. The question Jesus asked, what can I do for you? Friends, that's the question that love always asks. See, all too often I think we assume we know what another person needs, but love never assumes. Love always asks. And the question love asks is, what can I do for you? And then love listens. Specifically, love listens to people. I'm convinced the most neglected form of love today is the most needed form of love today. And it's just listening. Like set down your phone and really engage with people. Less thumb-to-thumb interaction, more face-to-face interaction. You know, I challenged our church years ago to listen to our community. And they told us what they needed. Our church had assumed over years what we thought the community needed. And one Sunday I said, hey, let's cancel church. Sounds crazy, but let's cancel church and let's go be Jesus on Sunday to our community. And this little girl in our church, six years of age, she loved it. She spent the whole week baking brownies. And she set up a table near the library at the University of Kentucky. And as students were going into study on Sunday morning, she was just passing out brownies. And one of the students who took it was a Muslim man named Ahmad. And Ahmad was working on a Ph.D. degree in infrared technology, brilliant engineering student. He takes this brownie, eats it in the library. It was good, so he comes out and gets a second one. And then he says to Julie, why are you doing this? And you have to know Julie. At six years of age, she's already got a lot of sass, and so she put her hands on her hips, and she was like, because Jesus wants me to. Like, no, duh, everybody knows Jesus loves brownies. That's in the Bible somewhere. And so Ahmad responded by saying, can I come to church with you sometime? And before Julie's dad could step in, Julie said, sure, we'll pick you up next Sunday. So they pick up Ahmad, they bring him to our church, and he's never been in an American church. So instead of coming in the auditorium where all the adults are, Julie leads him by the hand into the children's ministry, and he just follows her in there, sits on the ground, crisscross applesauce, and here's a story about Jesus loving this guy named Zacchaeus. And in Ahmad's brilliant engineering mind, he connected the dots and said, well, if Jesus could love a guy like Zacchaeus, maybe he could love me. And six weeks later, he surrendered his life to Christ and was baptized. And you're going to spend eternity with Ahmad. Why? Because a six-year-old girl partnered with the Holy Spirit and Betty Crocker, all right? Because a six-year-old girl embodied This important truth that says the only thing that counts, and Paul could have said a million things. He said the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in daily, tangible, beautiful, simple acts of love. A wise man, P.T. Forsyth, once said, if within us we find nothing above us, we succumb to what is around us. You know, years ago, I hosted a meeting in my office for prominent church leaders from around the United States. We were trying to eradicate AIDS, and we're still working on it on the continent of Africa. And so I'm the youngest guy in my office in this meeting. I didn't want to make a fool of myself, wiser, older men. I'm just listening to them. 
And I didn't realize this. Our staff would play a lot of practical jokes on each other. They'd come in before this meeting and taken this picture of my family off the wall, and they'd replaced it with a poster of the Jackson 5. And so the whole meeting, I'm sitting with my back to Tito and Marlon and Jermaine and Randy and Michael, and I'm completely oblivious. And I, I'm sure, like, Franklin Graham and some of these other guys were probably like, what's going on with this guy? And I tell you that because I'm not aware like, there are days where I'm just oblivious to the things that God wants to do in me and through me. If within us we find nothing above us, we will succumb to the temptations and the pressures and the trappings all around us. I'm convinced, and I could be wrong and we could agree to disagree on this, I'm convinced what separates us from the dimension that God lives in is just a thin membrane. Like, whales live underwater. The majority of their lives is spent below the surface of water. But every so often, a whale has to break through the surface and take a breath. And that allows them to sustain their lifestyle beneath the surface of the water. We're no different. Like, we live down here. But every so often, through the reading of God's word, through prayer, through worship, what we just did, we break through. And we breathe in the air of heaven. And it allows us to sustain our lives in this crazy, chaotic place that we call home. This is why the Apostle Paul said we live by faith. And not by what, church? Not by sight. Now that's easier said than done, isn't it? Let's be honest today. Uh, New York City, uh, ophthalmologists say there are more nearsighted people in New York City than any other city in the United States. And their, their philosophy is because of all the tall buildings. Every day people are hemmed in, in every direction by concrete and by mortar. And so they only use their field of vision for short distances. Thus they become nearsighted. What's happening physically in New York City is happening in the American church spiritually. We were created for an invisible reality, but we live in a visible reality. And our Father's expectation is that we continue to live by faith. And not by sight. Not easy. Remember in the Gospels when Jesus healed the other blind man? And after healing him, the crowds wanted to know, hey, what do you see? And the blind man said, I see trees. And immediately, and this is so like us, the crowd begins to dismiss that. And they say, oh, he's not really seeing trees. He's seeing people. Right? Give him some time. He's been blind his whole life. His eyes will adjust and he'll get used. (laughs) Now, what if he saw trees? Like Jesus is referred to as the great gardener. The Bible begins with the garden of trees in Genesis and ends with the garden of trees in Revelation. What if when the man said, I see trees, Jesus was like, whoa, I healed you too much. Like you're not supposed to see that yet. I mean, that's a possibility, right? Let me dive a little bit deeper. Love not only listens to people, love looks at people. And specifically, if you want to see God today, don't look any further than the only part of creation that bears his image. The people around you. Just look at people. I lived in Haiti for four years. Poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And every Saturday I would go to this open air market to buy my fruit. And I walk out one day with two bags full of oranges and bananas. And I'm standing, getting ready to cross the street. And I look, and there is a completely naked man. His legs are bent at a weird angle. I would later learn that his family broke his legs when he was born. 
and didn't reset them so that he would be permanently crippled so that he could beg so that his family could have food and money. Terrible progression. We don't understand that. That's the level of poverty there. He's got a bowl in his hands and his eyes aren't fixing on anything. He's blind on top of all that. And people are walking by and no one's putting anything in this bowl. And my heart is broken in that moment because he bears the image of my creator. My creator died for him. And so I begin to make my way across the street and there's traffic and I watch as he puts his hands in the sewer that runs along the street and begins to pull things out. I watch him pull a AA battery out and he cleaned it off and he tucked it under his leg as if it was some important artifact to be protected. And my heart broke even more. The sewer? Like of all places to put your hands, let alone to see it the way this man saw it, I take a hold of his face and in French I say, I love you, but God loves you more, and I want to help you. And he interrupts me, and he says, can I pray for you? And I didn't know how to respond. My American pride kind of got in the way, and I stuttered, and he said, no, can I pray for you? And he was smiling, and he was feeling my face. And I said, sure. And so he takes hold of my hands, and he raises these useless eyes towards the sky, and he said, good father. Help my brother to see you the way I see you. I thought he needed me, but I needed him. We live by faith and not by sight. My good friend John is a photographer, a professional photographer, and he took these pictures in Rome recently. And one of them stood out to me of this woman who's begging everybody's leaving a church service like this one. There are 17 other people in the frame. They've been worshiping Jesus, learning about Jesus. Here's an older woman begging. No one's eyes are even looking at her. It's like she's not there. He took this picture in Barcelona. And I understand the dilemma of the man with the white hair. Like if we just don't make eye contact, then we can act like they're not really there. And if they're not there, then we're not responsible to help. But Jesus sees them. And he wants us to see them too. We live by faith, not by sight. Uh, this is Roger and Wilson. And when Wilson was born, his parents died of AIDS. And he was shipped off to family in the middle of Africa. And they didn't want him, so they put him in a closet in their house. And his first four years, he never saw the light of day. They tied him to a chair. His back is kind of bent over. His eyes don't work. He's technically legally blind. And Roger has MS. And he says he's been blessed with this sickness. And he adopts children around the world that no one else wants. And so he took Wilson. Gave Wilson his name. Called him his son. And this is Wilson's first trip to the beach. Never been in water before. And he was terrified. And he kept grabbing hold of his dad's hands and saying... You've got me? And Roger kept reassuring, I've got you, buddy. Nothing's going to hurt you. What makes it challenging to live by faith and not by sight is all of us, what we have in common is suffering. And we're just not sure if we can trust him. You can trust him. He's a good dad. He's got you. That's why he said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We can live by faith and not by sight. This is Leroy and D'Artagnan. Maybe you saw their story on ESPN. One of them lost his legs at a young age. The other lost his eyesight at a young age. They met on a wrestling team in high school. 
Leroy carries D'Artagnan wherever he needs to go. Uh, Leroy is the legs, D'Artagnan the eyes. So D'Artagnan says, here's where we need to go, and Leroy gets him there. That's the church. You come in here, you've got a weakness, I've got a strength, and so I'll help you get where you can't go on your own, and then with my weakness, you bring your strength to the table, and you'll help me get to the finish line, to home, to heaven, where I can't get on my own either. We're in this together. We live by faith and not by sight. You know, when my dad was dying of cancer, the radiation just burned his mouth terribly. And so I'd sit near his recliner and feed him ice chips. And one day he kept smiling and looking around me. And finally I turned around and I thought, who's he looking at? And my dad's a professor at the University of Missouri, brilliant man. He was in the right frame of mind. And he said, you don't see them, plural, do you? And I kept looking around. I said, no, no, I don't see them. He said, there are children everywhere. He said, they've been here for a couple of days. I think God sent them to get me and take me home. He said, they're so full of joy in life. I wish you could see them. And that night, we're eating dinner at the table. My dad's still in his recliner, and he's getting sicker. And he says to my mom, who's washing dishes nearby, Carol, do you feel that? And my mom turned off the water. And she looked at us, and then she looked at him, and my dad was crying. And he said, the two hands in the middle of your back, do you feel that? And my mom said, strangely, yes. And my dad said, he just wants you to know he's strong enough to hold you and carry you the rest of the way. And my dad died that night. Last words I ever heard my dad say. We live by faith. Not always by sight. This is Bennett, two years of age. She was diagnosed with a brain tumor. I'm good friends with her parents, Katie Ann and Billy, and man, we were broken over this. For a year, they fought this with everything they had, and finally, Cincinnati Children's Hospital sent Bennett home and told her parents, there's nothing more we can do. And before Bennett died at the age of three, she told her mom one morning, mom, when I get to heaven, I'm going to pick yellow flowers for you, your favorite color, and I'm going to bring them to you just to let you know I'm okay. And Katie Ann said, honey, I hope you're able to do that. That would mean the world to me. And Bennett died. And recently, Katie Ann was in her prayer time, and she's reading God's word, and she just felt like her prayers weren't going anywhere. The grief, the longing for her little girl, which is real, was just suffocating. And so she got up from her prayer time, and she went in the living room where her other children were playing, and she decided to distract herself. And so she starts cleaning things up, and she rolls up the living room rug to sweep under it, and under the living room rug is this little purple puzzle piece. And it belongs to a puzzle they don't own. They built this house. No one else lived in it. And I know the skeptic will look at that and say, that's ah, coincidence. But I look at that. I've lived enough to say, I think a little three-year-old's been picking some yellow flowers in God's garden. And just wanted to let her mom know, he's got us. We can trust him. We can live by faith and not by sight. And again, human tendency we fight this, we resist this, we say, you know, if I was in charge, things would be different. John, your dad wouldn't have died of cancer. Bennett wouldn't have died of cancer. The world would look different if I was in charge. I love what the old preacher, J. Vernon McGee, once said. This is God's universe, and he does things his way. Now, you may have a better way of doing things, but you don't have a universe, all right? You know, when I was 12, and I'll close here, uh, with the help of some buddies and some fireworks, I, <laughs> I accidentally burned down my neighbor's carport. And 
the, the police showed up, and lots of them, and my older brother said, you're going to jail for a long time, and it, I was scared. I believed everything my brother said, and so I took off running, and I hid in this drainage pipe that ran underneath the street for several hours, and it's shame. The things that make us want to hide, we're all in this together again, and so I come out, and my dad's standing at the end of the driveway, and I thought, I'm dead. Like, I'm going to go meet Jesus today. My dad's going to kill me. And so I walk up to the driveway, and my dad very calmly said, John, every one of you boys owes our neighbors $40 for the damage. Well, I started calculating that. I had a lawn mowing business, $6 a yard. I had to mow seven yards. I could pay him back pretty quickly. So that week, I get my push mower, and I walk down to my first yard, and my dad followed me for some strange reason with his lawn chair. And he set the lawn chair up in the driveway, and I thought, this is weird. My dad's going to watch me mow. And so I go to start the mower, and he comes over and said, John, I want you to sit in the lawn chair. Okay. So I sit down in the lawn chair, my dad starts the mower, and I jump up, and I'm like, no, 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 Dad, I got this. And he looked at me, and he just pointed to the lawn chair and said, you sit right there. And so I sat down. And I had to watch my dad mow that whole yard trimmed around the trees, he swept off the driveway. And then he told me, pick up the lawn chair, and he went from one house to the next. He mowed seven yards, and I had to watch him mow seven yards. He took the $42 he had earned, and he gave it to me. And he said, I want you to take 40 and pay our neighbors, and then the other $2, and he smiled the whole time. He said, the other $2, put it in your pocket. If you want to go to the gas station and buy a Coke, or you want to go to the movies or the arcade, you just do whatever you want. That's yours to enjoy. I didn't know what to do with that. I paid our neighbors back. And then I went home and I sat in my bed. And my dad knew I was wrestling. And so he came and sat down next to me. Big, warm hands. I'll never forget it. He wrapped me up. I just started to cry. And he pulled my head in right here on his chest. He said, John, I'm going to explain one thing to you, and I hope you never forget this lesson. He said, you owe God a debt you can never pay back, and he took care of it for you. He was glad to do it for you, and he just wants you to enjoy your life. For the first time, I had a picture of what grace was. And later in life, I had someone wise tell me, grace is the face love wears when it meets imperfection. Aren't you grateful today for the grace of God? Here's what we do with it. We listen to people and we look at people the way our Father listens to us and looks at us. My prayer is this week, South Dakota and Minnesota will never be the same because we took this faith, this trust that we have, and we expressed it in daily, simple, tangible, beautiful acts of love. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for saving us, for paying our debt for us, for loving us in ways that we don't even deserve to be loved. Father, we are a grateful people today. And we just ask, what a privilege for us that you put people in our path today and tomorrow who need to be loved. Help us to listen to them. Help us to look at them the way you listen to them and look at them. May it start with our spouses. May it start with our children, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our coaches, our teachers. God, we want to be ambassadors who are not stingy, 
with your love. We don't want to hoard it or stockpile it. We want to give it away because you've been so generous towards us. Thanks for people like Donnie that you put in our path to teach us about what love really is all about. We love you, Father. We thank you for Jesus. We can't say that enough, and we pray this in his name. Amen.